Well, this morning we continue our series as we're looking at Christian community, and we've spent the last couple weeks, this will be, a, uh, I guess, actually our second week looking at it, and our January initiative, as many of you know, is the relaunching of our community groups. And this morning is actually a particularly special morning because today, January 13th, is the official relaunch and kickoff day. So if you're new to the Gathering Church, community groups are simply a smaller uh, group of people constituted from the members and visitors of this church that usually about 10 to 15 people, and they meet in one another's home about twice a month for fellowship, encouragement, prayer, to study the Bible together, and to remind one another of the good news of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. And community groups are the first step at the Gathering Church, at getting our feet on the ground in Christian community. And because of that, our vision is that every member at the Gathering Church would be part of a community group. And towards that effort, we are launching five new groups this month. I'm grateful for that. And um, some have already started, some are beginning to start uh, later this week or next week. And so if you would like more information about these groups, we have... Uh, These sheets here are called community group sign-up, and they list all the community groups that we currently have and the five that we're launching. And this information is available to you at the Connect Central wall, which is sort of a hub of sorts where you can find out all information about the church. It's in the back corner of the old chapel. Also there you can find information if you're interested in becoming a member. We have a membership booklet back there that you can begin to read and and peruse and so on. Also, uh, another initiative that we're starting this January is uh, an event on Wednesday evenings, and the first is a theological intensive going through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, so that's meeting here at the building, uh, and the other is a Bible memory group that's being led by Josue. If you'd like information about either of these, you can also get that from the Old Chapel at the Connect Central station. So today is particularly special as we're relaunching and launching new and old community groups. And so at the end of the sermon, we're actually going to invite all the leaders and co-leaders and host homes to come forward, and the elders would like to pray for you and to commission you for this work. We just are recognizing and acknowledging that this work is crucial to the life of the church. And so this morning, we're going to continue to build and articulate that case from the scriptures as we look at Romans chapter 12. We'll be in Romans for the next two weeks. This morning, we'll look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. And then next week, we'll look at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through the end. So we've looked at Acts last week, Romans for two weeks, and then for the following two weeks, we'll look at 1 Peter. So end up having five sermons all together on Christian community. So let me read the text to us this morning, and then we will unpack it together. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly 
than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And this is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that you've given it to us. Grateful that you've not left us alone to wander through the dark, but you've given us your Holy Spirit and you've given us your word to lead us and guide us into all truth. Lord, help us this morning to be stirred up with affections for Jesus Christ. Let us see the great hope to which he's called us and the great life that we have together. We ask this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me start by reading a, um, a quote from a book called When the Church Was a Family. And this is by a New Testament scholar named Joseph Hellerman. He teaches down at Talbot Seminary in California. And he's making an observation about the nature of community in the church in the modern American world. He says this. He says, as long as Americans traditional social glue of relational commitment and integrity continue to hold people together in their marriages, their churches, their communities, then an individualistic barcode gospel could be preached to them. In fact, great good was accomplished as converts took their personal relationships with God back to their church and family settings. Up until the late 1960s, social pressure alone was sufficient to keep people married. And it was sufficient to keep church members committed to one another in local community life. Society frowned upon divorce, and it highly valued commitment to church and civic organizations. We could preach a very individualistic gospel and ignore the sociological aspects of biblical salvation and rely on the pressures of society to keep people in community. And this worked for a season. But in recent decades... The inherent weakness of such an approach to the gospel has become increasingly apparent. As we are now painfully aware, the social values that once exerted pressure in favor of relational commitment are gone. The glue that held American society together for nearly two centuries is irredeemably cracked and brittle. Now that American society has become relationally disconnected, the poverty of our groupless gospel is glaringly manifested. The practical ramifications of all this for our lives and for our churches are enormous. By separating biblical salvation from church involvement in a culture that already is socially fragmented and devoid of relational commitment, we implicitly give people permission to leave God's family when the going gets rough, to take their personal relationships with Jesus with them to another church down the block or worse, to no church family at all. And this is precisely what... They do. So here is the tragic result 
of driving a wedge between salvation and ecclesiology, or salvation and church life. We've removed the gospel from what the Bible views as central to the sanctification process, namely commitment to God's group. In doing so, we invariably set ourselves up for the relational shipwrecks that happen in the lives of countless Sunday attenders who opt for individual sanctification over loyalty to God's group. After all, I can leave my church and my personal Savior will happily accompany me wherever I go. That's a pretty scathing indictment. It's a pretty long quote to start a sermon with, too. But he's essentially saying that there were social pressures in the society and the world around us that kind of kept us together in our tight-knit groups of marriages and church life and so on. But as that began to break down, as the social fabric and the social contract began to break down, there was no longer that external pressure. And so we've been preaching a gospel of individual Christianity for so long that it's between you and your relationship with Jesus and, that's, and that and that alone is what matters, that as the social fabric falls apart, so does committed church life. And in this view that is so rampant in American Christianity, it fails to recognize God's central purpose for the local church in you becoming more holy, in you becoming more like Jesus, in you being sanctified. It was never God's intention for it to be just you, your Bible, and the Holy Spirit. It was God's intention from the beginning through all the pages of the Old and New Testament that God was creating a people for himself, a people for his own possession, who were radically committed to one another, who were called each other brothers and sisters, that their obligation was even higher than to their, their immediate families in some sense. The question has often been asked, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Or it's been said as a statement, you don't have to be part of a local church to be a Christian. And I would just suggest to us that the entire question is really quite foreign to the Bible. (laughs) Because as I've already said, the pages of the New and Old Testament are continually speaking of a people that are purchased by God. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Or the prophet says in Hosea, I will have mercy on the one who was no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are now my people. And he shall say to me, you are my God. Asking the question or making the statement, you don't have to be part of a local church to be a Christian, is like saying to someone, do you have to live with your wife in order to be married? It's a, it's a kind of strange question to even ask. Or do you have to live in the same home as your sons and daughters in order to be their father or mother? Well, I suppose in some sense you, you don't have to, but it's just really a, a strange question. To be in any kind of meaningful relationship requires that kind of proximity. But we should ask ourselves, because we're people of the book, people of the Bible, does this thesis prove itself out in the text? Namely, this question, is our personal salvation with Jesus Christ inextricably tied to your relationship with one another? Let's look at our text this morning for the answer. Because Romans, the argument that Paul is making is that when we are united to Christ, it also unites us to one another. 
And that's one of the points that we're trying to stress this morning. Romans 8.1, one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, maybe my most famous favorite verse in the entire Bible says this, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So the gift of God's righteousness comes to us and takes away our condemnation when we are in Christ Jesus. That is, in relation to him, a spiritual union of sorts. We're united to him. We belong in him. We're found in him, as Chris read this morning from Colossians 3. In spiritual union with Jesus, created and preserved by the Holy Spirit through faith. That's what it means to be in Jesus, that we are spiritually united to him, and when we are in Jesus, there is now therefore no condemnation for our sins held against us, because our life is now hid in him. Our life is hid in Christ in God. Now notice the link, though. We read Romans chapter 12, verse 4 chapters forward. It says in verse 4, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many, are one body in Christ. Notice the phrase. And individually members of one another. So the faith that unites us to Christ, that brings us no condemnation, the spiritual union to Jesus, also is a spiritual union to the body of Christ, the church. So to be in Christ is to also be, is to be united with him, and to be in Christ is also to be united to one another. They're the same idea in Paul's theology in the book of Romans. That leaves no room in this text for some kind of individualistic gospel. In other words, you can't just preach Romans 8.1 without also preaching Romans 12.4. That there's no condemnation when you have that spiritual, personal faith preserved by the Holy Spirit relationship with Jesus Christ, and that now, therefore, unites you to all of God's people. Consider this carefully. We may have never thought about this, how utterly crucial the local church is to your life in Christ. Verse 5 says, we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So what does that last phrase mean, that we're individually members of one another? It means that in belonging to the body, we belong to each other. Connection with Jesus, connection with Christ, means connection with each other. If one arm is bleeding badly, then every limb in the body will grow weaker, not just the arm. If one arm is working hard to feed the mouth, then every other limb in turn will be strengthened. They're connected to each other. They're united to each other. So let's think about this for a moment in the importance of about our individual relationship to Jesus. What would it mean if one limb of the body said to the other limbs, I have no need of you. I don't like you, maybe. So I have no need to be attached from you. So I, I choose that I don't want relationship with you anymore. What would that mean? it would effectually mean that that limb would be saying, I choose to not be in Christ. Because you can't have it both ways. 
Paul says, in Christ, we are individually members of one another. And that is an objective, real reality. We don't make it a reality. It doesn't matter what our opinion towards this idea is. It is a reality. To be in Christ is to be in and related to one another. And if we reject this reality, I'm going to press hard here for a minute. If we reject this reality, the reality that we are members individually of one another in Christ, then effectually we are rejecting Christ himself. So to put it bluntly, the reality of the local church, the local body of believers, is utterly crucial to our Christian lives. When we understand the design of something, then we better understand how it is to function, right? Your, your iPhone could just be a paperweight if you don't understand how it was designed to function. Thanks, John. So back to Hellerman's point that we made at the beginning when we read the block quote. The purpose and the function of the church is to stand above every other allegiance. The purpose and function of the church is to stand above every other allegiance. The church alone holds the moral and spiritual authority to provide the needed support and structure for the Christian life. Let me say that again. The church alone holds the moral and spiritual authority needed to provide the support and structure for the Christian life. The life of the Christian, the life of the vine, needs to be supported by the structure of the trellis. The life of the Christian, the Christian life, needs to be supported by the life of the trellis. And the church alone holds the moral and spiritual authority needed to provide that support and structure. A committed relationship, a committed life to a local body of believers. And because for many of us, there's a lot of substitutes that we use to be this moral authority in our lives. And just because something isn't supposed to be uh, the supreme moral authority in something doesn't mean it's not important. Let me give you an example of what I mean. There's a very common substitute for the local church. And it's a good substitute because God means it for our good. But it's not made to be number one. And that's the family. A common, very common substitute for the local church is the family. And the family becomes the support and structure that holds everything together. Now, don't get me wrong. Family is a massive building block to society and life. It's massive to the life of the Christian. It's massive in the plan of God. But when it takes the front seat, it can become detrimental. Listen to uh, Stanley Hauerwas. This is the quote, and by the way, the point I was going to make last week when I was running long, and I said, I'll email it to you. I didn't email it to you. I worked it in. (laughs) Stanley Hauerwas is a professor at Duke Divinity School, and he wrote a book called A Community of Character, and he said this. He says, the family has been broken because it has to carry a great moral load. Our participation in our families takes on an overriding significance because the family is not shaded in other modes of our community life. When the family is all you have left, then it begins to take on the characteristics 
of a church. Ironically, therefore, the family is threatened today partly because it has no institution that has the moral status to stand over against it and to call its question into question its demonic tendencies. The first function of the church and relation to the family must therefore be to stand as an institution that claims loyalty and significance beyond that of the family. And only when such an institution exists can we have the freedom to take the risk to and from to live in families. Only when the church is an institution that stands over and against and can call into question the family's tendencies to slide into sin. Can the family actually be what God intended it to be? When it's in the number one seat, when there's nothing else to call it into question, then its tendency is to, is to be fragmented and to lose its way. But when it has the church as its most superior and supreme allegiance, then the family can function and the family can operate in the way that God has intended. There's freedom there. And there's freedom from the church and its elders and its members to speak into it and to call things into question and to encourage and to bring discipline and correction as necessary. So let me make it very practical. Moms, dads, husbands, wives, let's just press this very practically. The best thing that you can do for your family is to be radically committed to a local church. The best thing that you can do for your family, the best thing you can do for your kids the best thing you can do for your marriage is to be radically committed to a local church. That's why we say, and we talk about membership, that we commit to one another when things are going well. We sign relational commitments and church covenants when things are going well because we're acknowledging within ourselves a propensity to need to potentially be corrected one day. We acknowledge in ourselves that we still have not arrived, that we are not perfected yet, and that we need one another to speak into our lives. And at the bottom of our church covenant, we say we invite this kind of loving criticism into our lives. It's the expectation from the beginning. The expectation from the beginning is that there will be times, there will be times in our lives when we will need other people to look in and speak and offer correction. And only the church can provide and offer that kind of moral and spiritual authority. But then don't you see the beauty when the family has its right restraints, when it has the restraints of the local church, when it has something that can actually call it into question, then and only then can it truly flourish. It's like a child. When my children have clear, defined boundaries... And there's clear expectations, and there's clear discipline when needed, and clear encouragement as necessary, which is often. Then the children thrive. They thrive in that environment. But when there's the absence of that, because I'm passive, I'm not paying attention, I'm distracted, I'm in a conflict with my wife, I'm worried about the children, whatever it is, the children don't thrive as well. There's not that freedom There's not that structure in place to bring that kind of stability that's needed. And the same is true with the family. When a family is committed to a local church and there are moral and spiritual bounds in place, the family can truly thrive.
and being committed to a local church on this relaunch community group Sunday implicitly and inherently and explicitly means that it's not just people that are committed on Sunday morning. It means people that are committed Monday through Saturday too. We're launching these community groups as a very practical way for you to commit yourself to one another and to live out the Christian life together. Because that, of course, is God's intention for us. Let's look as we turn a little bit our focus here. Back at Romans 12, verse 1. And further understanding God's intention here in communal life together. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hmm. You know what's remarkable there? And we sang this this morning. We sang, my life is an offering, right? Uh, I choose to lose my life, Lord, and find it in you. Um, We we sing of of giving our lives as as a sacrifice to God. But what's striking here is that in the original text, in the Greek, your bodies is a plural, and living sacrifice is a singular. So what that means is that when we, together to one another, are presenting our bodies corporately, we are presenting one living sacrifice to God. So the implications of all the gifts that Paul's going to get into in verses 3 through 8 are a practical outworking of what this looks like. So to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, to give our bodies to one living sacrifice, means our committed lives together. Means the deferential treatment and preferring one another instead that we'll see in verses 3 through 8, that's what it looks like. A living sacrifice, one sacrifice that's holy and pleasing and acceptable to God, is the result of many bodies, many individuals committing themselves to one another and preferring one another. I was asking myself a question this week as I was looking at this text. (laughs) If I was God, and it was uh, my intention that all my people would be strong in faith, and they would become perfect in love, that's my intention for them, and I have the, the right and I have the ability to just give that to them, and whatever portion I desired, wouldn't I just give it to him and, at, all at once? If I had the ability to give everybody, I was God, perfect love, perfect faith, I have the sovereign right, I have the sovereign ability to do it, wouldn't I just do it in one fell swoop? I think I would. But what's remarkable is that's not what God decides to do in his perfect and sovereign purposes. His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are greater than our ways. And he chooses, as this text tells us, he chooses to give different measures, different measures of faith, different measures of grace, different measures of giftings, and so on. And he chooses to do it, as we'll see here in just a moment, he chooses to do it this way because he says this is the greater glory of building us up into a spiritual house. That as we learn to see our own portion of faith, as we understand the gifts that have been given to us, and we understand that they're for the service and the building up of one another, and we learn to not think more highly about ourselves than we should, 
This is the act of giving ourselves and becoming one living sacrifice. Look at verses 3 to 6 with me for a moment. The main point of these verses seems to be that each member of the body of Christ should not think more highly of himself than is necessary, but should think with sound judgment about his own faith, grace, and gift. And that's what verse 3 says. Verse 3 says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In other words, Paul is really concerned about the way that we think or the mindset that we have among us. Verse 6 says that since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, varied grace means differing gifts. And since the gifts differ according to grace, we can't boast in any of them. But we've only received them and be glad to use them to serve one another. And of course, he puts this all in the context of a body. Verses 4 to 5, he says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since God does have the ability and the right to give all of us the same great faith and the same grace and the same gifts, why does he choose to give such a variety of measures of faith and such a variety of grace and some receiving less faith and some receiving more faith. Why does he do that? I think the answer is that God intends to create a perfect people for himself, not ready-made as immediately perfected individuals. Rather, he intends to create and perfect a people for himself by having them use their gifts towards each other so that they join God in the process of helping each other grow in knowledge and faith and hope and love. He invites us into the process. Rather than making us just immediately perfected individuals, he allows us and he enables us and he gifts us to work collectively, to work corporately and seeing each other grow in knowledge and faith and hope and love. And that's what we have the opportunity to do every time we gather together. That's what we have the opportunity every time that we meet together Sunday morning as a church. We can join God in edifying and building up one another. And that's what we have the opportunity to do when we meet in community groups and triads and when we visit with one another. We are joining God in the gift that he's given us and seeing our brother and sister grow in knowledge, faith, hope, and love. It's a tremendous calling. It's a tremendous and wonderful opportunity that he's given us to be a part of the work that he's already doing in our brothers and sisters. So let's just apply it. Again, that is why we have community groups. That is why the elders have taken efforts and a lot of labor and a lot of love, and that's why members of this church have volunteered their time to host and to lead and to co-lead Because we understand the massive opportunity, the massive calling that's upon our lives. To build one another up, 
to see one another grow and sanctified and become more like Jesus through the mutual ministry of one to another. And so we want to intentionally create those kinds of structures in the church. And as a local church, we have always had a philosophy of ministry that we don't want to have program after program after program. Instead, we want to create situations and create a culture of discipleship that just allows for maximum exposure to each other. Because we believe, and the Bible teaches, that the discipleship plan of the gathering church and his church is to be in relationship to one another. As each is using their gift, and each is considering their gift not as something that's just been given to them to puff themselves up or make themselves big, but God has given you that gift, that measure of faith to service of the person that's sitting next to you right now. So our vision and our encouragement to you is that every member of this church be part of a community group. And if you want more information, yet again, to sign up for one, you can go back to the Connect Central where there's a list of all the community groups. You can go on our website, gatheringchurch.com backslash community groups. And there's someone that can answer that question for you and help you get plugged in and join God in the edification of his people. Let me just add one other point. I said a moment ago that we've intentionally not created program after program in this church. And we do have community groups and we do have triads and that's basically it. But you don't have to wait for us to tell you what group to join, you don't have to wait to be a part of a community group twice a month to mutually encourage one another. Each of you has a gift as you're sitting there right now. Each of you can look to someone around you, invite them out for a cup of coffee, and pray for them after church. If you're an older couple, invite a younger married couple over and offer to read through a book with them, mentor them, encourage them, read through the Bible with them. If you're an older man, ask and see if a younger man in the church would like to have coffee with you. If you're an older woman in the faith, encouraging the younger, encouraging those that are young moms, encouraging those that are single, encouraging those that are in the workplace. Invite them over, send them a note, call them, let them know that you're praying for them. That we build a culture of discipleship, not just program after program, but we take seriously each as members the responsibility that we have to care for one another. I was thinking of this practically this week. My family and I, in our time of family worship, we read at one point through 1 Samuel, uh, we've got to verse chapter 23, and this is the time in David's life where he's been anointed to be the king over Israel. And Saul hears this, who is the current king, and it creates a lot of jealousy that leads to rage that ultimately leads to Saul wanting to kill this young anointed king who's to uh, rise to the throne after him. And so he's out and he's literally seeking to kill him. And his son, Jonathan, is one of David's best of friends. And Jonathan, knowing that his good friend David is being pursued by his father, goes out to encourage his friend. And listen to this text, and I just want to give us four principles very quick. I wanted to give us something practical as you think about what you're doing when you're meeting in community groups, triads, and one-on-one. It said, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be with you. And Saul, my father, knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horish, 
and Jonathan went home. Four points, real quick. One, everyone needs Christian friendships and Christian relationships. We're talking about David here, the one who's the man after God's own heart, the one who's been anointed to be the next king over Israel, who will be Israel's greatest king, a great warrior, a great leader, a great spiritual man, and he is deeply discouraged. He is deeply downcast, and he is in the need of his friend. He is in need for Christian fellowship, Christian camaraderie, Christian friendship. And the point is simply that no one is above the need for this kind of friendship in your life, this kind of loyalty in your life. Two, though, there's a conscious effort from Jonathan. It's a conscious effort from Jonathan. It's intentional. He doesn't just do it on the fly. He rose and he went down to Horish. Verse 16, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David Horish and strengthened his hand in God. It was intentional. It wasn't just a happenstance. He didn't just happen to run into him at the local coffee shop. He intended to go to his friend because he knew that he needed strengthening. He knew that he was deeply discouraged. And he went. Third thing, he strengthens his hand in God. He strengthens his hand in God. He doesn't try to strengthen him in his own self-reliance. He doesn't try to strengthen him in all of his past accomplishments. He strengthens his hand in God. And fourth, he does that by reminding him of the promises of God. He does that by reminding him of the promises of God. Now we have in this sense, in this situation, Jonathan knows that Samuel has anointed him to be king. Because he says, he reminds him, don't fear, for the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you shall be king over Israel. And I will be next to you, and Saul my father knows this. My dad knows that God's the one that's anointed you. And if God said it, then you can bank your promises, on, your life on his promises. Now, many of us don't have those kinds of oracles from God that we can build our lives on, but we do have this book that says that there is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And we can say to each other, all things are working together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. We have the promises of God that we can speak to one another. So as you think about your relationships, remember Jonathan and David, that everyone needs Christian friendship. We must be intentional about it. We must strengthen their hands in God by reminding them of the promises of God. So let's conclude by looking at where we get the power to live this way. And then at the end here, we'll call the community group leaders up and we'll pray for them. Again, verse 12, 1. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Man, if we understood the import of what he just said, I appeal to you on the mercies of God. He's just spent 11 chapters laying out the theology of who Jesus Christ is and all that he's done for his people. He's walked us through creation He's walked us through the condemnation from sin. He's walked us through Abraham and his faith. He's walked us through the forgiveness of sins that comes through the waters of, of baptism and, and confession and repentance. He's walked us through Romans chapter 8 telling us that there's no condemnation. 
He told us in Romans 5 that we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's told us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. He's told us in Romans 8 that I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he says, I appeal to you on the mercies of God. I've just been telling you about his mercies for the last 11 chapters, how gracious and kind and merciful he is to you. He doesn't say, I appeal to you on the judgment of God. He doesn't say, I appeal to you on the wrath of God. He says, I appeal to you on the mercies of God. God has been so abundantly kind to us. He's forgiven us of all our sins because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul appeals to us on that basis. Do you see the great gift of grace that God has bestowed upon you in Jesus Christ? And he's saying this is just a natural response. This is what it looks like to live out one who's received and embraced that kind of grace. The mercies of God. And then do you see what he says right below that? He says to present yourself as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice? Sacrifices are throughout the scriptures. And they're bloody and they're messy and they're dead. They're lambs that were slain for the atonement of sin. There were blood that was sprinkled on the people. Blood of one who died in their place. Pointing, of course, to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It's the very first thing that John the Baptist says when he sees him in Mark's gospel. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Because on a Roman cross, he would suffer, bleed, and die to be the final sacrifice and atonement for sin. So that you and I now can present our lives as living sacrifices. We can be a living sacrifice unto him because he was the final bloody sacrifice in your place and on your behalf. We are sacrifices that live because of the free grace that's been given to us by Jesus Christ. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful, merciful Savior. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your grace towards us in Jesus Christ. Let this now be our act of spiritual worship to present ourselves to you and to one another as a living sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have the opportunity now to pray for and commission our community group leaders. So I encourage you, if you're a leader or a co-leader or a host home, to come forward and to stand before the congregation and let's, let us encourage you and let the elders lay hands on you and pray for you. So someone needs to be the first one to stand up and walk forward. We're so grateful for all these wonderful saints that are willing to serve you and serve us as a congregation to open their homes and take of their time and 
their families, and we're just so grateful for you. We love you so much, and we're just so honored to be committed in relationship with you, that you were willing to serve us in this way. And so I want to pray for you and, uh, and commission you for this work and ask God's uh, favor on your life. Father, thank you for these uh, leaders and hosts. We pray, God, that you would encourage them and bless them in the doing, Lord. We are grateful that we have a church of people that are willing to open their homes and their lives and their time and their energy and their money, Lord. We are so uh, blessed by them, Lord. We pray that their sacrifice would be pleasing to you, God, that it would be their act of spiritual worship as they help to lead us in giving of our lives to one another as we participate and join you in the edification and the building up of each other, Lord. So bless them, God. We pray for fruit in their homes. We pray for fruit in their meetings. We pray that their groups would grow and abound and new groups would be started. We pray that people would come to know Jesus Christ through their ministries and through their efforts, Lord. We pray for all the children that are represented by the people here. We pray that children would see and hear their parents and friends talking about Jesus and their hearts would be stirred with affections for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for these people. And we ask God for your blessing. And we send them now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.